What is up, podcast listeners? Martin Yu here. Welcome back to another episode of the show. My guest today is a tech philosopher. You don't hear that every day. <laughs> Award-winning filmmaker, author, entrepreneur, and a LinkedIn top voice. Her name is Sami Aryan. She has a background in philosophy of science and technology. She describes herself in society as a transition architect. You also don't hear that every day, an uncommon term for sure. So don't worry if you don't know what that means yet, because we dive into that in today's conversation. Besides all these amazing titles, Sami is a brilliant mind who produces content that is both educative and entertaining. Her current project called InPeak, which recently minted its memberships as NFTs, gives holders access to a wide array of knowledge on the platform to stay ahead of the curve in terms of learning and education in the Web3 space. I had a lot of fun recording this episode. We covered a ton. We talked about philosophy, inclusivity, entrepreneurship, and lots more. So without further ado, ladies and gents, please enjoy my convo with Sami Aryan. So Sami, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This will be fun. My first interview with a proof member. Well, I mean, uh, me being on their show. Yeah, I was literally thinking earlier about how to introduce you as a fellow podcaster and proof member. And then I remembered you said um, you actually don't plan your shows. So I was just like, let's do it. Uh, Somi Aryan style, tech philosopher style. <laughs> I yeah. actually like the term tech philosopher, by the way. Yeah, I, I made it up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny, so, you know, the amount of times where uh, I've met somebody that they've like, I really like that term. I'm going to use it like I'm gonna borrow it. And I'm like, yeah, welcome to it. <laughs> you know, I coined it. <laughs> How did you come up with it? What's, well, what's your background story? I guess like that, it, that really encapsulates you as a person. But I, I know you're also like author, filmmaker. But uh, just give us a quick kind of like rundown of who is Somi Aryan. Yeah, sure. A tech philosopher, essentially, you know, a lot of people would call it a futurist. Um, but because I studied philosophy, I studied philosophy of um, political, I've got two masters in po political philosophy and transatlantic studies. So I studied politics and then I uh, apply what I studied in, in politics and philosophy to technology. Uh, so it's a bit complicated and science and technology. So I wrote a thesis on a comparative study of Nietzsche and Kant's philosophy of science uh, and, and then application of that to their political philosophy. Very different from our NFT world. <laughs> you know, you would never <laughs> think of that, you know, meeting somebody in the proof discord that they wrote a thesis on Nietzsche and Immanuel Kant's uh, philosophy. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so that's what I did. And then um, after writing that thesis, um, because when I was writing it, that was mo more about science. Then I started to get more and more interested in, okay, now how, how do I apply this to technology? Because I've always been fascinated by technology. When I was about four years old, I used to have dreams where I would open a, a notebook and it would turn into a screen. And it was like, um, at that time, uh, we didn't have a TV. I was born in, in Tehran. We didn't have a TV. Uh, it was during the Iran-Iraq war. There's no way that I would have ever seen anything like it. You know, mm. uh, I, uh, it wasn't like I had ever seen a science fiction movie or anything like that. So there's no way that I would have known about it. And then later on, I spoke to Professor Diana Wash Pasalko, who has written a book called American Cosmic. And uh, when I told her about, this was only one of the small kind of examples of the type of experiences I've had uh, with regards to technology. Um, and she said, this is called uh, Remembering the Future. And uh, it's quite interesting. It's like, there are people who who seem to have preeminences about technology. Um, That's wild. And, uh, and yeah, and I seem to have that. So I have a lot of examples of this, but, but I usually don't talk about them publicly because when I do, it sounds a little bit crazy. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> a bit weird, but it's, yeah. um, I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of things that as human beings, we don't understand. And most yeah. of the brain, we don't understand most of the brain anyhow. So. It's totally yeah, yeah, so, super interesting. Please continue. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the fa fascinating things that I'm like, you know, absolutely obsessed with, which is why I don't know if you saw this on, in the discord for proof where I mentioned this once I was like, I asked somebody uh, who was their dream uh, podcast guest 
And and I said my dream podcast guest is Eric Weinstein because he's like really um you know heavy into this stuff. And you know, as somebody who is like into NFTs, you wouldn't think what other things people are are into, right? So exactly. um, so it just fascinates me. I think technology has a life of its own as a philosopher. I think you know, we often think that we are using technology to advance ourselves. You know, the, the typical definition of a tech of technology is a set of tools and techniques that we use to enhance our abilities to do things. But another way of looking at it is that what if technology is a life form in itself, you know, and technology is using us to further itself. You know, this is, mm-hmm. this is, this is a great way of, you know, it's just like turning things on, on his head. Chicken versus the egg, right? Yeah. What came like, first? Yeah, exactly. You know, like for example, there's another really interesting thinker that I, I'm a big, big fan of. His name is Joshua Bach. He's been on Lex Friedman's podcast a few times and he's got a, a really interesting, techno- interesting take on this. And he says, what if, you know, we, we often think, for example, that humans, are the most advanced form of life on earth, right? And we often think like, for example, as plants are the least advanced. But actually, if you think about it, what if plants are the most advanced type of life? And what if they are using us and they are using animals to build this incredible network, underground network of the way that these plants are all connected with each other, right? And they are using other forms of life to propagate and to, you know, spread themselves. Multiply, yeah. Uh, You know, multiply, spread themselves both on the water and on earth. So this is all fascinating, you know, ways of looking at it. And then if that is true, if you look at, you know, the way that plants are under the ground, um, you see how they're connected with each other. And how different is that from the connections of the synapses in our brain or the connections of uh, an internet network? You know, it's so similar, right? So, um, So it's entirely possible to think that potentially there is something about these connections it just gives me goosebumps thinking about these connections of, you know, things that we think are not relevant. We think our, our little day to day thoughts and, and concerns are the most important things, uh, you know, in the world. But actually, there are so many other ways of thinking about technology. So these are the kinds of things that I think about every day, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, in some ways, science and philosophy mm-hmm. has so much in common. Essentially, you're asking questions that need to be asked. You're, you're putting out hypothesis and then you're like, well, does this make sense? And is, is there a way I can challenge this? I think yeah, philosophy exactly. in a way, like it just makes you challenge your thoughts and your thinking to refine your way of, of seeing the world. I have this kind of a, a quote that I really love. You don't believe what you see, you see what you believe. The quote that you just gave, you know, the we don't believe uh, what you see, you see what you believe or vice versa about what you said about philosophy and science. In the past, we used to call science, there wasn't a word for science, it was called natural philosophy. We used to think uh, of what we today call a science, it used to be called natural philosophy. So it started with philosophical questions. And then when we discovered, um, you know, or we came up with the idea of scientific method, in many ways we dropped um, philosophy uh, from that. And that's a mistake because when you do that, you lose the... Um, you lose the ability to wonder beyond the limits. In many ways, uh, science gives you a box and it says like, this, these are the boundaries and you are not allowed to think outside of that. But in many ways, the thing that has always enabled us to think of, like what I just said about what if, what, sorry, what if technology is using us from a scientific perspective, it wouldn't make sense to say that for many people. Like, you know, they would be like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> but actually it kind of makes sense. Like when you think of it, right? Why do we always think that we are using technology? You know, what if technology is a life form in itself? What if there are so many different 
kinds of life forms that we can't perceive, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that. And then going back to this, you know, you believe what you see. Uh, I would add that you believe what you see and you touch and you taste and you smell. Um, so with, with your senses. So with that, what's to say that the metaverse that we are entering, this is why I'm so fascinated by Web3 and, and the technology that we're building around this in that what if the metaverse is enabling you to have all of the experiences that you would have in so-called IRL in real life? that is indistinguishable. You know, technically, when you think of it, when I drink this glass of water, ultimately what's happening is that electrical signals are being sent to my brain, which gives me uh, the understanding of, you know, now I'm less thirsty, right? When I talk to you, the conversation that we are having right now, these airwaves, you know, ultimately it's all electrical. You can ultimately, you can reduce everything to physics. Biology is eventually reduced to physics. Chemistry is eventually reduced to physics and physics is eventually reduced to mathematics. You know, so, so ultimately the whole world is mathematical and physical in a way, that, uh, but then there are, there are different scales of physics. And as you go to the smaller scale, um, it becomes more weird. We know less about it. We understand more of the macro. So we have with our senses that we have right now, we have a limited range of understanding of uh, this world around us and, and the technology that's around us. And we are now experimenting with increasing our range you know we do that through telescopes you know we do that through um, by, by inventing different kinds of uh, technologies like nanotechnology is going to be the next thing you know quantum computing is going to be the next thing so so we are co-evolving with technology and going back to what you said about what you see is what you believe if that is truly the case there is going to be a time where there's going to be no distinction between what you experience in real life uh, than what you do in the metaverse, which then makes me think, what if we are already in the metaverse? This is a met metaverse and that this metaverse is part of another metaverse. And, you know, and now we are creating another metaverse. So it's I like, was not ready to get my mind so screwed in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> makes it's a sense. valid question. We wouldn't know. Because like, as you were pointing out, like imagine the time where you can make an AI that is so similar to one of your family members or that and it's so indistinguishable that you wouldn't even know. Like, that's the crazy part. Yeah, exactly. What makes you think that, you know, where did my dream come from? Like, why did I have a dream about iPads, essentially. The dream that I had was about iPads. And iPad was created many, 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 many years ago. <laughs> you know, so later, many, many years later. You know, so I remember the first time when I had a phone with a screen. You know, I was like, oh my God, this is like my dream, you know. And then when I saw an iPad, I was, I never forget that, you know, that I had a dream about iPads, mm -hmm. you know, like many years before I'm not, I'm, I'm giving away my age here, but you know, many years before it was created. And I, you know, and I was in a country, in a place where there's no way I could have known about it and many examples of things like that. So look, uh, ultimately, you know, some people might say, Okay, even if that's the case, what's the implications of that for the life that we live right now? And my answer to that is that the implications are that if you understand a system, you can manipulate it. That's the implication. If we are truly in a metaverse, if we are truly in a, a simulation of sort, if we figure that out, then maybe the answer, you know, to solving problems like climate change, maybe the answer, you know, to the problem of traveling through uh, our galaxy, maybe the problem is not to physically build a spaceship and get into that spaceship and go into the space. Maybe the answer is mathematical. Maybe it's about finding, you know, loopholes. Uh, was it Einstein that said something like uh, to solve a problem, you have to go to the next paradigm or something like that? 
I think that is so true. You know, the, in real life, it, it happens a lot. I come from a, a very underprivileged background in uh, south of Tehran, where I grew up, nobody spoke English. You would never believe, you know, if you saw where I grew up, you'd never believe where I am now. Um, the way that I've made changes in my circle, you know, one place to another, and the way that I've made my way up, it's not been linear in many ways. It's been about leapfrogging and having almost like a quantum leap from one circle to another and then going to the next one, right? I think that's how it works, that that's what he means by that. I couldn't have solved my problems you know, if I wanted to just focus on my surrounding, I had to think bigger and think, you know, jumping out of this circle into another circle. And just by doing that, automatically, my earlier problem has been solved. Right. And I think it's exactly a similar kind of thing. That's how momentum is built. I'm fascinated by the concept of momentum. Like in business, how do you build momentum? In your life, how do you build momentum? And I believe that there are... um uh, look, I don't. Uh, I, I use the term believe and feel interchangeably. When I say I believe, I really mean I feel because I don't have strong beliefs about anything. How can I know? I don't know anything, right? I, I can't know anything with certainty because every time I think I know something, I, uh, then I find evidence that it may not be the case. But when I say I believe, I mean it in a, in a very loose way, uh, more like I feel, right? I feel that there is a pattern that it repeats the way that you build momentum in how you create life is very similar to the way that you build momentum to build a business it's very similar to the evolution of the universe right so some momentum is built when you find a relationship between you know how uh, you jump from one circle to another and by circle here, I mean like from one paradigm to another. And the, uh, the better you get at jumping these paradigms, the more momentum you build. And I feel like the solution to the problem of our life on the planet, and when I say problem, I mean like our longevity as a species, our, our uh, you know, subsistence as a species, that problem needs to be solved by finding these paradigm shifts and the acceleration uh, of them. And like the way that, you know, to be able to... To be able to transcend that? Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. And, you know, it's kind of like mathematically, there must be a, a formula, you know, like if you think of like the speed of technological advancements, if you think of go back all the way to, uh, I always, I talked about this in my TED talk, where there is a, a parallel between four different aspects of human life. And those aspects being technology, money, economy, here I've separated money from technology and economy, and governance. If you look at these, the, there's, there's a formula that repeats and there's a parallel between them. The first step is, let's look at ancient history, you know, at the time of, you know, ancient Greek, the form of governance was emperors, right? You had emperors, then in economy, you had slaves. Then in terms of money, you had like early forms of money, you know, people use salt as money, people used, you know, perishables as money. So there wasn't a good form of money. Um, and then you go down to so you have in in economy you have slavery in governance you have emperors in money you have things like salt and beads and things like that um, and then in technology you have pretty much nothing like tool making you have like early forms of tool making right then you go further into a 12th century so so look how long it took trajectory of technology it's, it's basically going like it's going like this going for people who yeah, are, it's who are like, uh, like exponential it's exponential exactly right so so then you go to 12th century and the next major milestone was the creation of fueling mill when you had that uh, so in technology now you have this massive thing that's happening in in terms of tool making and then at the same time 
in money now you have gold you know people have figured out how to use metals um and then in governance you now have kingdoms but then you have these kingdoms with slightly more decentralized so you have like these lower these like local kings um and then in economy this is the time that we went from slavery to a serfdom so serfs and villains are the next generation after slavery where do we go from there? We go into 17th century, the first industrial revolution, next major thing that happens. And that's where you have, in terms of governance, you have the separation of the church and state and the rise of elites. For the first time, you could become, for example, famous as an artist, you could become an elite as a scientist, whereas in the past, you know, you didn't quite have the same. You, If you weren't born in the right kind of circles, there's no way you could have made your way. But now it's slightly becoming slightly more decentralized. Then in money, we start to see, you know, paper money backed by gold. Um, and in terms of economy, we went from slavery to serfdom. And then the next thing is factory workers. So for the next, for the first time, we now have factory workers. Then we go into the second industrial revolution and now we are starting to see early forms of uh, imagination of what a computer could be with people like you know Charles Babbage so we don't yet have computers but we have an imagination of, you know, the design of a computer. And then uh, we have, you know, mass production. We start to have knowledge workers. It's no longer just factory workers. Now we have people who are using their mind. So people become more sedentary and, and we have knowledge workers. In terms of money, paper money starts to become, you know, ubiquitous. And then we go into a major war in 20th century. And uh, usually these wars are catalysts for, you know, the next major technological advancements. So that's where it fueled nuclear power. And then after the war, we start to have computers. Then we have digital, you know, the, the early days of the, like digital technology. And then we go into the gig economy with digital technology, we go into gig economy. So this is the third industrial revolution, which is a digital revolution. Again, a change in, in economy, you have a change in governance because now we have democracy. So we've gone from, imagine uh, we went from emperors to kingdoms to like more decentralized. Uh, like the, uh, the elite uh, yeah, aristocrats. Exactly, elite and aristocrats. And then now we now have, uh, you know, the representative democracy. Okay, now where are we now? The next thing is we are now going into more decentralization. We are now criticizing our current form of democracy, which is a representative democracy. We now have Bitcoin, we now have Ethereum, we now have NFTs, and we are now thinking about a whole new way of being. We are redefining what a state means, right? So you think about, you know, people like Balaji talking about that. So that's what's happening. This is really fascinating. So I hope that makes Makes sense. And, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, you were going to go into something, but I'll just like cue the question. So how, how are you thinking about that? And how do you see kind of like the future panning out with all this new technology? Because I think a lot of people like see it. A lot of people might understand it, but then they also understand like how much, whether it's, you know, the government or like very big corporations also have a certain say in how the things evolve. So how are you personally like really thinking about that? Very curious. So going back to the idea that technology has a life of its own, or even a bolder version of that technology is a life form, I believe that it's not going to be stopped. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. You can try to slow it down, but you can't stop it. And I think that many politicians, if they are smart enough, they know it. And they are trying, this is their last pushes, you know, they're trying to make the best of what is possible. And you will be surprised. I have met a lot of people who are in positions of power because I studied politics. I was invited to America by the U.S. State Department when I was studying politics in St. Andrews University. And I went to places like the Chicago Tribune, Brookings Institute, you know, spoke with senators, went to the State Department and one of the things that I've noticed is that the majority of these people don't care about the future generations. They're just thinking about 
their positions now. They are thinking about, you know, making as much money as possible. I actually came back from that trip and decided that I didn't want to continue to go into politics. You know, initially I was planning to go into politics and and that was going to be my my life trajectory. When I came back from that, I decided not to do that. And I decided that I'm going to go into media and business and an entrepreneurial kind of route uh, to uh, to success. I think like it, it was like the perfect timing too, where the technology allowed you to branch off like that. Cause I, at the end yes. of the day, I think your purpose is probably like you wanted to have a certain kind of impact to share your thoughts, to share ideas and also to share learning, which is what I think in peak is about. Right. Actually, I see myself as a transition architect uh, in my book, which is about the future of work. I talked about transition architecture. So I see myself as a transition architect. What that means is that this new technological world that we are entering is not going to be a utopia and it's not going to be a dystopia. It doesn't have to be either of them, but it depends on how you respond to it. If you respond to it, because I, like I said, technology has a life of its own. You can like it or not like it. It's kind of like two plus two is four. You could say that you don't like that answer, but it is four, right? Mm-hmm. So technology is inherently mathematical. It's interwoven with, with the laws of the universe. And you can't say, you know, that you don't like it. Oh, you can say, but it doesn't care, right? So uh, as a tech philosopher, my, uh, you know, my job is to observe. As a transition architect, my job is to help people transition, essentially, and to be able to, um, to come to terms with it. Why do I use the term transition architect as opposed to transformation? People often use the term digital transformation. I don't use the word transformation because I don't believe there is one transformation. I believe there is constant transition. And as we go into this exponential age, it's not like we are going to jump from this step to the next step. And we are now okay. You know, I'm already ready for blockchain technology to be disrupted. I'm preparing for that time. You know, when I look at people like Bitcoiners, like today I interviewed Jimmy Song and it was like quite painful uh, talking to him in, in many ways because it's so adamant that Bitcoin is the ultimate, is the, is the final technology in, in terms of money, you know, the next iteration yeah. of money. And I'm like, look, it, it has taken this long for us to go from, you know, gold to paper to now to digital to credit cards and now to Bitcoin. What makes you think that this evolution is not going to continue? How can you say that this is the final thing? Technology is not final. I have to interject because this was like a perfect thing uh, to queue up Nietzsche. I know that Nietzsche had a big influence on you as a philosopher. And um, I kind of reread it once in a while, but I read like a man alone with himself. And one of like my favorite parts on that, that touches upon what you just said is that convictions are more dangerous enemies to truth than lies. Yeah. It's like the only conviction I have is that I don't have a conviction. Nietzschean term, he says that all systems are bad, but not having a system is a system in itself. (laughs) You know? Okay. (laughs) You know, like to say that, you know, you're an anarchist, that's already a system. Because we live in a world that is semantically limited. You know, we are using language. Yeah, words that that are so easily misinterpreted. That's why I love mathematics because, you know, I wasn't good at mathematics when I was when I was a child because in Iran, it's a very different kind of system. They don't encourage you, especially as a woman, uh, as a girl growing up, you're not encouraged to study math. And I think they don't teach it the right way. But that's why I love math, you know, and, and later on, I really fell in love with it as I grew up in that when you look at one side of it, one part of it, it seems completely in disagreement with another part of it you can that's why you can think of like the the physics of macro you know the mathematics of macro is completely at odds at least from our perspective from our way of understanding it is completely at odds with the mathematics of quantum but on the bigger level on a bigger scale as you zoom out 
all these contradictions can live together. And, and this is why I love Nietzsche, because he's all about contradictions. It's like, you know, he's like contradictions can live together in, in harmony. That's like the Dionysian thesis, you know, and they can all be true. That's why he says there is no such thing as truth. He says the truth is like a woman, <laughs> you know, like that. That's always <laughs> moving. It's always a moving target. Like it's all like it's changing constantly. You know, this is why. Um, I think it's, it's fascinating for me to try and get more women into it because I think women have cycles, you know, they're, they're constantly changing. They're like the weather, constantly changing. And I think as a woman philosopher, it allows me to come to terms with all these differences and, and these things being in realities that are, that seem to be at odds with each other. I wanted to say something about the transition thing that we were talking about before I forget. So Yuval Noah Harari has got a very interesting, uh, I don't know if you know him or, or if you've read the Sapiens, uh, yeah, Sapiens the, yeah. or the, yeah. yeah, his other book, Homo Deus is even better than Sapiens. I think it's a great book. So I heard him once talk uh, in an interview where he said something that really inspired me. That's where I came up with the idea of transition architect. So he said, it's like in the past, our identities were like, you know, a house, like you built your identity as a house and like it had foundations. You had to create strong foundations for it. Then he's like, now, as we are moving into this technological kind of age, our identities are more like a tent. You have to think of it like as something that you have to constantly break down and move to another place and set it up again. Think of something like social media. It's exactly the same, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you had MySpace. You would build your identity in MySpace. Uh, I don't know if you remember it. You may be too young yeah, for yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and then you had to move on from that to go to Facebook. And then you had to move on from that to go to Instagram, to LinkedIn, to Twitter. Yeah. So you are constantly packing down your identity. You know, you're following your business, everything that you're building. And now it's like all about Discord. You know, then it's going to be the next thing is going to be high rise. You know, it's whatever Yuga Labs, labs uh, you know, uh, metaverses mm -hmm. or Decentraland uh, or whatever it is. So that's where, as I was listening to that, it was like, this is such an interesting way of describing what's happening with technology. And what we need is people who are going to be architects of these tents mm. we need people that will be able to help you design your tent so that you can and then in my book i i took his metaphor and i expanded on that and i was like you know you can think of it like the goalpost is constantly moving what you've all said at the end of that interview was like you don't know when you're gonna have to move but you are gonna have to move yeah. Right. So you are constantly mm -hmm. having to move. The best thing that you can do is to come to terms with the fact that we are going to be in transition. That's why don't get too hung up on anything, not on Bitcoin, not on Ethereum, not on your moonbird, not on. No, not even the moonbird. <laughs> well, I love my moonbird. You know, I have a, I have an emotional attachment to my moonbird. I love it because it's like uh, it has a historical meaning in my journey, right? But it's an interesting thing that, like you pointed out, is just human beings were so. Um, I mean, there's a reason why we have all these fallacies in our reasoning, all the biases that we have. It's to for us to obviously like conserve energy. If we really thought about everything all the time, I think we'd just go crazy. So. In some way it's useful, but then it becomes so, it kind of holds you back at a certain point because the moment you make sense of the world, it can end up holding you back, if that makes sense. That's why you need to become a transition architect. You know, everybody mm -hmm. should become the transition architect of their own life. It's like what Bruce Lee said, be like water. Yes, exactly, exactly, right? So you need to be ready for constantly moving and you need to not have attachment actually this is very much also a zen Buddhism. buddhist yes yeah. yeah exactly you you have to be ready to let it go all the time not to have judgment look we are humans it's not possible not to have judgment you know like i have judgments but when i then i stop and meditate and think about it then i'm like okay right like like it didn't mean ultimately it doesn't mean anything uh, move so non-judgment non-attachment and uh there's something else i can't remember there's like the, the impermanence yeah so so that's the the, the uh, non-attachment part 
Yeah, that's the non-attachment. I think there's another one that I can't remember right now. But it essentially we are in that um that's what it is you know that's that's probably the best philosophy to think of it we are constantly moving and it's becoming exponential so our generation i'm assuming you're a millennial as millennials we are i mean i'm an older millennial you know but then you may be a, a younger millennial or you may be a gen z but our generations Uh, that we are living on earth right now we are the link between the pre-digital and the post-digital so we have the hardest job of you know i sometimes say that millennials i used to say this in my talks that millennials are the most important generation in human history and people laughed because they were like millennials they're already big headed and i was <laughs> like no 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 i don't mean it in that sense what i mean is that we are the link between the pre-digital and the post-digital we are mm-hmm. the ones who are going to have to come to terms with the fact that our next generations our children are going to be only digital they're going to be only living in the digital um it's such a crazy leap because i remember like when i was a kid i didn't have a cell phone the the only time i could really watch tv is to play some video games on like a, a sega genesis and then afterwards like a nintendo 64 and i mean the the rate of transition and also of evolving of all these technologies has been so so fascinating to look at now you look at a video game it doesn't even feel like a video game it looks so real that yeah. you're like yeah. how is this even possible Yeah, exactly, which is why, you know, our pixelated birds are so fun because they remind us of of the times where things weren't so realistic and and 3D, right? Mm-hmm. Uh that's why pixel art is so interesting. I was going to ask, you talked a little bit about momentum before, building momentum. How have you personally used that in business and how does that relate to uh, you know, in peak and everything that you've been doing like as an author and also filmmaker? Yeah, so um Look, momentum means something different for every person because it depends on where you start. For example, when I was the age at which Mark Zuckerberg became a billionaire, I was trying to get out of Iran, you know? The age when he started building Facebook, I was trying to get out of a forced marriage in Tehran, you know, to my cousin. So I come from below zero. I come from a completely different background. I grew up where nobody spoke English. I had to teach myself English and I had to find a way to get out of the country. And then even when I did get out of the country, I wasn't a British citizen for 11 years. I couldn't travel. I had a lot of issues, problems, but even now, I don't know if you if you know that I I couldn't go to NYC. I don't know if you saw that story on No, so I, I didn't. I, I even I'm a British citizen now, but, but they denied me an ESTA because I was born in Iran. And apparently That's this insane. is Yeah, the last time I was in uh US this was not the case. Last time I was there in 2017 to interview Gary V for my documentary which won several international awards and and that's where the filmmaker thing comes from. But at that time I uh, was able to get an ESTA. I was able to travel. And, you know, that was like uh, two years after I became British citizen. But uh, then 2018 apparently Donald Trump put in a new rule in place that if you're born in Iran you now need a visa and i didn't know that so i booked my flight and you know hotel everything you know bought my proof pass and i was like ready to go to this thing and then i go to get my esta like everybody else 3 days before i go and i get denied an esta and i uh, tweeted at the us um, department of immigration etc and these are all the examples of you know opportunity losses for somebody like me so it one of the things that for example that not being able to go to that trip that's a setback in my momentum because i bought all my nfts and i i had so many meetings there i wanted to meet the proof team i wanted to get to know them better i wanted to meet proof members i uh, bought my doodle i bought my moonbird i i spent so much money i spent about $300,000 worth of, on nfts i had back to back meetings uh set for those few days that i was supposed to be in new york and that's a setback in my momentum these are the ways that diversity matters this is why people don't see it they don't understand how hard it is to be a female that 
was born in Tehran, you know, that has had to go through all of those difficulties to get to this point. And then even then, yeah. even after becoming a British citizen, you still are like, these are all setbacks. So to gain that momentum is much, much harder depending on where you're coming from. That's almost like you're, you're pushing a boulder up a mountain. You know, it's not even just like cycling exactly. on a straight road like that. You're going like this, you know? Exactly. And actually I compared that, you know, like if you are a female immigrant who comes from a specifically, not just any immigrant, if you were Italian, it would be different coming from a country like Iran, which is more comparable to North Korea. So if you come from a country like that, you're not starting from zero. You're starting from minus hundred, mm. you know? Uh, on the flip side of that, what I see is that some, it's kind of like a, in my book, I talk about this. I say that you, you know, you as a person, you're like a ball and you could be different kinds of balls. You could be a squishy ball, you know, so like basically what creates that momentum and what leads to someone's success is about being the right kind of ball hitting the right kind of ground. You know, like if you are a glass ball hitting a hard, um, you know, floor, you are going to break. If you are a bouncy ball, it's like a ball that is, that is flexible, that's got that ability to bounce back, you know, like a tennis ball, right? You hit it hard, it will go higher. Mm. So then if you're a squishy ball and you hit the hard floor, you're not going to break, but you're also not going to go anywhere. If you are a hard ball, and you hit a swamp, you're going to go in. So a person like me, I'm a hard ball. A place like Iran is like a swamp. Mm -hmm. A place like Iran, I would sink. What does that mean? I would be in jail, you know, because I'm against the government. You know, I'm too, too hardcore for them. So I, as a ball, had to go and find my right ground. And I've been looking for my right ground all this time. And it's so much harder to do it when you come from a background like that, you know? So momentum is built when the agent in this uh, metaphor, the ball, hits the right kind of ground, which is the right kind of environment. The effort from your side is really finding that, which is almost like an impossible task at some time. Because even when you, like even now you're in London and still, you know, as a, as a citizen there, like you can not get an ESTA. That's it's, yeah. I mean, there's so many limitations. And I think that's why like the web three and NFT world and that aspect of it seems very promising to me. Well, yeah. And it remains to be seen. Remember that even the web three and NFT space is predominantly, you know, built by white men. Um, yeah. And it's not exactly the picture of diversity. Can I just come back to um, in peak for a moment? And I'll, there's, there's a reason why I'm doing this because you, you talked about inclusivity and, you know, diversity and also including more female into the space. So in one of your other podcasts I listened to, you were saying that basically you already built an email list before you actually launched it as yeah. we know it now. Right. Yeah. And you said you did that mostly through LinkedIn. Is that right? Yeah. Can you just walk us through that and then we'll continue in that lane? Because I know that even that email list was predominantly female. Yes. Yeah. So how did was. you go about and it that? It is. It still is. But I'm finding it very hard to bring women into Web3. They're just so much more tech averse is, is I guess, that, that you know, the, women are very, very slow adopters of technology, which I found very frustrating, which is why I decided because before we had Impeak, it was called Fempeak. Event, uh, you know, initially it was more about bringing more women into the space. But I found that it was impossible to build a business around it because it was so limiting. It was just really, really difficult. You know, you can think of even companies like BFF, for example, they have way more, uh, you know, um, reach, re well, uh, capital, you know, they have mm. a lot more capital. They have the kind of contacts that they are able to bring in massive names from Hollywood. And you still compare, you know, say floor price of BFF to the most mundane male, you know, launched NFT. It's nowhere near where it needs to be. It deserves to be so much, you know, in, in a such, such a bad place. But that's because women are 
much harder to get into technology. It's very hard to build um, businesses around them. But yes, I used LinkedIn. You know, I've been a LinkedIn top voice, uh, officially chosen by LinkedIn three times in a row. Last time I was like on the same list with like Richard Branson's daughter, with like Rishi Sonak, who is our, our chancellor. So the, all of these things gave me a lot of visibility. They endorsed my book. The book I've written about future work, career fear, and how to beat it is endorsed by, by LinkedIn. So they've been very supportive of everything I've been doing. And even now, they're starting to get more into Web3. LinkedIn is not yet fully Web3 onboarded in many ways, but they are getting into it more and more. And they like what I'm doing with the content, you know, so they invite me to their headquarter here in London. Uh, so I built a relationship with them. I have about 8,000 followers on LinkedIn. So I started to, you know, I have a whole team working on my LinkedIn. Like I think altogether we've got like between four or five different people work on my LinkedIn. At some point we, we had up to eight people working on my LinkedIn, doing a lot of outreach through my LinkedIn and building on my secondary network, reaching out to people and saying, we are building this thing. Uh, would you like to be on, on our mailing list? Would you like to join, you know, and learn more about it? And that's how we built it. And this was like 2015 no, or 16? Uh, no, no, no. It, this was, uh, we started this in 2020. Oh, okay. Wow. That's, that's yeah. impressive. Yeah, we only started in 2020, actually August 2020. So since then we started. But the fact that I built my uh, LinkedIn audience, that was since 2017. Yeah. Uh, so I, I built my LinkedIn audience, you know, my LinkedIn following, but then the mailing list we started building from 2020. We used everything in our power to build this. Um, How would you approach direct? Were you doing like direct messaging? Yeah. Literally cold outreach. Okay. And, and was there, because yeah. I'm super curious about how did you have a right balance of reaching out to someone and telling them about what you're doing, but also not sounding too salesy? Oh, okay. They were following okay. No, because they're already following me, right? But how did you get them to follow you? I didn't get them to follow me. They followed me because I had so much content on LinkedIn. Oh, okay, At okay. some point I had like some of my content on LinkedIn. That's how I became a LinkedIn top voice, right? So it all started with, I used to have like, sometimes I would have even more than one video per day. So I used to have a lot of videos, maybe five, six a week uh, at the very least, you know, weekdays. So you still have a lot of video content on LinkedIn. It's like anything else. And this was, I was very lucky because I came to LinkedIn at a point when they started to become a social media. So initially LinkedIn wasn't a social media. People thought of it as just a place where they dumped their CV. Mm -hmm. And then I started to notice that things were changing with LinkedIn and was becoming a place where people were posting things, right? I started just posting stuff. And then uh, I started sharing videos because I'm a filmmaker. So I started sharing videos and I was giving a lot of talks. So, and I saw like what Gary was doing with his content and it, that inspired me. I was like, okay, what Gary is doing, I can do that on LinkedIn. And I, I started doing it heavily. And there was a point, look, so LinkedIn's algorithm keeps changing. And there was a point where LinkedIn wanted to really push native video. They really wanted to encourage, so they, they want people not to post videos from YouTube. They wanted people to mm. post uh, LinkedIn native videos. And I was very lucky that I was just there at the right time. And I was a filmmaker and I had a lot of content and I started recording a ton of content for LinkedIn where I was teaching people about marketing. You know, I, I have a digital agent marketing agency as well as my other business called Smart Cookie Media. So I have two companies, Smart Cookie Media and Impeak. And then I, I made this documentary called The Millennial Disruption and I went to New York to interview Gary Vee and all of those things led momentum, right? So one thing led to another. Then the people that got on my documentary were from like CEOs and, and marketing directors of companies like Bentley, Jaguar Land Rover, The Economist. I had the head of digital marketing of The Economist, uh, Marie Claire, Steinway, you know, all these people, they came on my documentary and they talked and then we, we took the snippets of those films with my commentaries and we started posting them on LinkedIn. So I just had interesting content. I had good content and that's how people started following me. Talk about transition architect, Gary mm -hmm. Vee. Yeah. I think he's doing so much for the space to, to bring people in. That's kind of what you're 
going to be doing within Peak in a way, right? It is a learning yeah. platform, right? Which is essentially like helping people getting onboarded more easily because all that information, a lot of times it's kind of, it can be a lot to process if you're just getting into Web3 or just getting into NFTs. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to build a platform where as new people come into the space that they can go there and they, and, and I'm building it like these courses where people can go in and like, literally this is, let me take you through the steps. This is where you want to be going. This is like your, your map, right? One of the things about this whole digital marketing thing is that you have to not be precious about the platform and like what it takes to succeed in it. So for example, I hate TikTok with a passion. Like I literally hate TikTok. Okay. But now I'm starting a whole new series for TikTok. Mm. We are going to go heavy on TikTok now. Why? Because that's where the attention is. I don't give a shit that I don't like it. (laughs) You know, like you can't be, this is what I, you know, and I guess Gary has had a big role in drilling this into everyone's head. And it definitely, I picked it up and I was like, yeah, he's right. Like you can't be precious about these things. You can't say, oh, I don't like TikTok and therefore I'm not going to be on TikTok. No, I don't care where my audience is. I'm going to be there because now I want to bring in, you know, onboard these people. So what we are going to do with TikTok, I'm going to have my birds sitting on my shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I, I've, I've literally looked, let me show you this. Look, I, I've just built um, a whole, like a green screen here. <laughs> you know? Awesome. So, so like I, I've, I've painted my wall green <laughs> and we are going to be doing quite a lot of fun things for TikTok. And I was like, you know what? Like I have a sense of humor. You've, you've probably noticed, you know, I'm always joking in, in the proof discord. Like I want to take <laughs> yes. my sense of humor and I want to like try and do these things in a fun way. You know, I have my bird on my shoulder, you know, like you have to become an entertainer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the perfect combo is if you can educate and entertain. Cause I, I think some people, some people are super knowledgeable and I would love to consume their content, but sometimes it goes so deep and it's not entertaining at all that you just kind of like doze off. And I think most people, especially TikTok as a platform is for quick content. It's for things that people can consume in five, 10 seconds. And it's a nice tidbit of information and it's cool. It's funny. One of the other things I learned with the platform TikTok is that it needs to be contextual to culture. Like sometimes a video yes. that I make that like I spent five minutes on it, I think it's not going to perform that well. And just because it like it fits with a song that's trending at the moment, it gets like 50,000 views or something. And you're like, yeah, th- this is so interesting. While a big movie that you're making with super cool production, you post it on Facebook, you get like a thousand views. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, going back to momentum. The fascinating thing about how momentum is built, one of the ways that, that really you build that is by doing a lot of it. You know, like uh, when you do something a lot, you're persistent. It's like lottery, right? It's like, you know, probability. The more you throw the dice, the more likely it is that you will get the number that you want. So you just have to do it. You know, most people who have had awesome ideas, they had many, many shit ideas. You know how many times I failed? You know, how many times, I, you know, I've, I've, I've done things, how many times I've tried, you know, creating content in different ways. And like some of them stick, some of them don't stick. You just keep trying. Eventually something will work out. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the whole concept too, of being entrepreneurial. You're okay with your own failures. A lot of things that hold people back from what I see is even Gary talks a lot about this, but it's the judgment of others. You know, if you just play your game and you know that it's just a game of repetition, obviously, you know, don't don't be so stupid that you're doing the same thing over and over again and not improving it. Because there's a lot of people that are just like basically banging their head on the wall, like still be smart and, and learn from your mistakes. But as long as you learn from them and your mistakes are not fatal, like uh, it's all good, you know. Definitely. Absolutely. What's coming uh, with InPeak and uh, before we even get to like what's coming with InPeak and all that stuff, I want to understand how you want to implement NFTs into InPeak because I I heard you talk about like some tokens you wanted to make and you you basically call them like allies for like male and female. Could you go a bit into that? 
Yeah, I dropped that idea. No, see, okay, this is okay. back, going back. Yeah, this is going back to the idea of yeah, like constantly improving and and <laughs> testing. Um, actually, you know, after I minted my Moonbird, I came to the Moonbird channel, started talking to a lot of people, and then of course later on joined Proof. I learned so much and, and also working with Zeneca, I learned so much that I realized like that concept is too complicated. You know, sometimes like if you're, especially if the platform or whatever it is that you are, you know, promoting is already educational and, and complicated. And, and then the bear market happened as well, which I think, you know, that's another thing. I decided to keep things simple. So one of the things that I learned, and this was also partly from I had a really good podcast interview with Justin Measle and he said some things that really helped me. He said he generally doesn't like human PFPs because when it's the human, people try to see themselves in it. And it's yet another reason whether they might like or not like to mint something. Uh, or, or to buy it on the secondary, which I thought I was very interesting because initially with my uh, Fempikers idea of we were going to have Fempikers and then we were going to have allies. It's like, first of all, people need to like that art style. Secondly, they need to like that character. So you are creating more and more barriers for people to, to adopt, right? And then I looked at what happened with G-Money, with Admit One, looking at, you know, things like proof. It just m made me realize that I don't want to do a PFP that I want to do more like a membership thing. And now what I'm working on is potentially looking at how can I uh, include some form of gamification to make learning more interesting, to get people, you know, more engaged and, and get them to, to learn and then to have, you know, rewards for, for learning that type of thing. That's awesome. I wanted to ask you, so since you dropped that part of it, the membership, as you said, maybe that's what's going to like maybe replace the premium uh, membership that you have currently on your website. The thing that you pay for, you would essentially get an NFT out of that. So what we're going to do is we're going to have an NFT membership so that, you know, you can then log in with your NFT. And then uh, if you don't want to log in with your NFT, because because we are an educational platform and a lot of people are coming there to for the first time to learn about how to create their wallets so they don't even have, you know, they don't even know how to buy these things, right? So we want to make sure that we are not leaving people off who are coming from Web2. So there will be a membership option where people can just pay fiat and buy a membership, annual membership, or they can buy, um, they can mint the NFT and then the NFT holders are going to have additional perks. So the one main thing will be that the Discord channel will be open only to NFT holders. So there will be a Discord channel and then within the Discord channel, there will be our educators. And a lot of the educators are actually proof members. We are going to call them like our, we were testing out the term Sherpani for, uh, you know, so we might call them Sherpas and Sherpanis or something like that. You know, <laughs> or, I, you know, I thought it, it might be a fun thing or we might just call them experts, educators or whatever. Right. Um, but we want, we want to have this the, kind of like how you go to proof. You have artists. We are going to have like our educators, right? They will be, they will have their own role. They will have a different color and then there will be the members. And, uh, you know, it may be that we will also create a channel for people who, you know, a separate channel for the NFT holders, kind of like what we have with, with proof and and uh mm -hmm. you know uh, moonbirds etc that that there are different tiers of things right um or it may be that the discord will be closed and only available to uh, nft holders um so we will be pl playing with these things and then uh the nft holders will get like a three-year membership or five-year membership you know we have to have to think about that we're working on all of these details and there will be other things for example um you know because i'm fascinated with technology and science like say for example i may want to go to cern and maybe people could enter a raffle to come to cern with me you know like mm -hmm. uh, things like that you know, I may want to go to Boston Dynamics, uh, see these robots, you know, and, and people, maybe I could take 10 people, 20 people, 30 people with me, you know. So, um, so I want to build these, you know, a few times a year, build these unique experiences 
So as we move forward, um, do you still, because I, I remember that podcast with, that you did with Justin Mazel, and it was yes. very interesting how you talked about inclusivity. Do you think about orchestrating in peak in a way that will help with inclusivity in the space itself? Because I know you're trying to onboard like a lot more female into the space, but how do we like systemically change the way that female projects are being perceived? Yeah, well, right now, Look, this is a very strategic decision. Right now, I'm trying to not brand myself as a female founder. Like, I, I, I want to actually distract people from the fact that I'm a female founder. I don't want to emphasize that because I can see that it's not playing in my favor. And it means that fewer people will mint, fewer people will join. I'm actually actively discouraging the branding of myself as a founder and my platform as being a place for women. What I want to do, you see, there are things that I think we don't yet have a solution for in Web3. For example, I would have loved to be able to verify in a way that if the men who come to our platform, if they bring a female friend, so going back to the allyship, that they would be rewarded for bringing, you know, like, like men could be rewarded or women too could be rewarded for bringing more women into it. But I don't know how to verify that, mm. you know, because you are dealing with wallets and the fact that our identity is tied into our wallet, it can be a bit of a problem sometimes in uh, Web3 Definitely. because I, I can't, I can't verify. How can I verify that people are bringing their wives, <laughs> you know, or their, their best not, friend? Not just their best buddy. You know, from, uh, yeah, they're, they're like best buddy from the gym that they just lifted weights together, you know, <laughs> 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 as a beer. <laughs> you know, so, so I don't yet have a solution for this. It's a complicated subject. It's a complicated problem, something that we can only strive to be better at and to be more inclusive in the future. But one thing that you said, again, bringing it back to that podcast that you did that I love is that it's almost like we can, we can be architectures of culture in a way. And I think yes. NFTs could be enabling that. Could you talk a bit more about how you think about NFTs in that way? Yeah, I definitely think NFTs, not just NFTs, tokenization. Tokens can be a way of engineering culture uh, and rebuilding culture. And the beauty of it is that they enable us to align incentives between the different parties in a ecosystem, right? As people, we love rewards. We love tokens. We love a token of appreciation. We love a token of something. Even if it's like... It doesn't mean anything. Like, for example, I have this aura ring and, uh, you know, yeah, a sticker. You know, I have this aura ring, right? Which actually, as I, I'm talking to you, like like now it's, it's coming up to about 10.30 p.m. here. And I'm like thinking about, I need to soon, you know, wrap up and make sure that I prepare for bed. Because I know that if I don't go to bed on time tomorrow morning, so my aura ring every day, it gives me a, a score. So every morning yeah. when I wake up, my aura ring gives me a score. And then if my score is above 85, I get a crown. So I get a little, you know, a little crown on, on top of my score. You cannot believe the impact that that crown has got right on me. Like, you know, I literally, like I push myself to make sure that I go to bed on time so that I can get a crown. <laughs> it's like, I'm a big yeah. ass woman, you know, like, it's like, like, <laughs> like, like, I'm, like, I'm not like a five-year-old child. Right. But I yeah. really care about my crown. Right. Right. Because, <laughs> because at the end of each quarter, so this is what happens. Like at the end of each quarter, every three months, it gives me an overview of the last three months. And it says in the last three months. So, so you get crowns in three areas in your readiness, in your sleep, and in your activity, the sleep one is obviously the most important one, because if you have that one, everything else falls into place. Usually the readiness score is based on like your heart rate. Like, for example, I make sure that's why I was trying to make sure that I would eat before I talked to you, because I was like, I didn't want to eat too late um, because I know that if I eat too late, that will affect my heart rate and then that will affect my crown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? So this is a great example of tokenization. Like this is a way. And now imagine what if Oring had an NFT, right? And that for people who got, you know, like at the end of each quarter, you know how we have staking of our birds and we get yeah. like uh, silly little rewards, but what we, we look forward to it, we like it, right? So at the end of each quarter, the people who had, you know, like over one third of their, uh, their quarter, they had crowns, they got a little thing. Like, you mm -hmm. know, like that's just, these are many, many ways that you could, you know, or, or they would get like, maybe they, like, I can't, I'm so surprised that they're not doing it. Like they should totally use NFTs. I think every brand should use NFTs um, to create a gamification and fun and uh, engagement. Yeah, exactly. A deeper experience. Like you were saying, it's also more pleasurable for you. For some stupid reason, it, it may be just a crown, but that actually makes it more pleasurable for you and it helps exactly. you stay consistent. Yeah, exactly. And ultimately, it makes me a healthier person. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like I have ADHD and I, I used to take a pretty high dose of my medication for my ADHD because I fixed my sleep. Now I take much less medication and oh. I sometimes go without it. And it's just amazing to be able to take control of your health in that way. And all because of a stupid crown. Because <laughs> all I'm doing is just making sure that I get that bloody crown in the morning. <laughs> Another thing too is those uh, steps, you know, like the Fitbit or something. I'm sure the Apple Watch does it too. But let's say you get yeah, 10,000 steps in. Like it's such a feeling where for some stupid reason when uh, well, I, I still wear it, but with the Fitbit, like if I didn't get like 10,000 steps, I'll just go outside randomly and do a walk. It's crazy that this little device can affect me so much. Exactly. For a better way, you know. But think about what did I say? Technology has a life of its own. We think mm. we are programming technology, but technology is programming us as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, we don't even program our thoughts. So what are we really programming? That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, Sophie, I, I know you have to hit your goal now and uh, I really, I really appreciate your time today. This was really fun. For anyone that's listening, that's not following what uh, Somi is, is doing across many platforms, LinkedIn, uh, now all, like TikTok is coming, right? Yes, it's coming. It's going to be coming. Uh, also like check out InPeak. Everything that Somi is doing is, is helping educate and also helping shaping a, a better transition, a constant transition into better technologies and future technologies. So for that, I really appreciate you, Somi. And, and uh, can you just tell a little Thank bit you. the audience where they can find you, your two, three links that uh, would be best to connect with you? Yeah, sure. Just uh, so uh, the, the good thing about being called Somi Ariane is that nobody else is called Somi Ariane. So, so like that's why on all social platforms, I'm just Somi Ariane. So it's S-O-M-I-A-R-I-A-N, Somi Ariane. And um, it's the same thing on Instagram, Twitter, uh, you know, LinkedIn, everywhere. It's just at Somi Ariane. And then, of course, there's also Impeak. That is in as in inclusive, inspired in this together and peak, which is like reaching your peak. So in peak one word. Awesome. Thank you, Somi. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please consider leaving a review for me. Um, it's always super helpful to get that kind of feedback uh, of what I'm doing right, what I could improve. And uh, so if you can take 13 to 35 seconds of your time to share some thoughts with me, I really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. And uh, until next time. <laughs>